Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful song reminding us by means of our brother Tom, just reminding us of the fact that there is a choir already in heaven and that, Lord, whenever we sing here on earth, we are joining that choir and even anticipating that glorious day future when we will be with you unhindered by sin, unhindered by struggles and weaknesses, but perfect as you are perfect and being able in an unhindered way to worship you and cry out, holy, holy, holy. And that is what you are, Father. You are the incomparable one. You are like no other. No one compares to you. You are perfect and blameless and sinless. And we thank you for the fact that you are one who is worthy of our worship. And even as we open up your precious word, we pray that you would build us up, Father, that you would convict us, encourage us, comfort us by means of your word. May we be uh, eager listeners who have a soft and tender heart to your scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brethren. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Matthew 18. And I want to read verses 12 through 20. This is God's Word. Matthew 18, verses 12 through 20. Jesus asks, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is strain? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, there are many beautiful things about our glorious gospel, aren't there? A lot of beautiful realities about the gospel. For example, we may think about the fact that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we receive forgiveness of sins. We may think about the beautiful reality of of redemption in the gospel. And when you trust Christ, You are bought out of the marketplace of slavery to sin, and now you are part of the kingdom of God. We may think about eternal life, that in Christ as a believer now, you have not only the promise of quantity of life forevermore, but quality of life, which begins even now as we enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. In the gospel, we may talk about the fact that we have a hope that is sure in the gospel, that regardless of what happens in this world, we're, we have this wonderful anticipation that one day we will see Jesus as He is and we're going to become just like Him and fellowship with Him unhindered by sin and anything else that, is, that we're beset with as far as weaknesses go. One other beautiful thing about the Gospel as well is the fact that in the Gospel, we have been restored to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? That now as you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, you have been rescued from your sins. And you now are in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Christ has dealt with your sin definitively. So that now, no matter what happens in this world, nothing can change that relationship that you have with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled and restored vertically to a right relationship with God so that now He is your Father and you are His child if you are in Christ. But also now, the other beautiful reality with regards to the gospel is this, that on the horizontal level, 
Because of that vertical relationship that's been restored, we now are people who are motivated to practice on the horizontal level ongoing restoration in the church with one another. Now as God's children, we are instruments of change in the lives of others. And of course, we understand, brethren, that this is easy to do when all is going well. When things are um, uneventful in our lives. But when things are hard and struggles hit and sins happen amongst us, it's a lot harder to do this, to be about restoring one another in the context of the local church, in grace and in the truth. When life gets messy, right, in the lives of other people or in your own life, this is harder to do, to be about restoration. And yet we must be about this because struggles with sin, as we said last week, are real in the church. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. All of us are in a process. This is why we call it progressive sanctification, right? We are in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Positionally, we are justified in Christ. God has declared us righteous in Christ. But practically speaking, we, are, we have this unredeemed humanness, right? This fallenness that we still struggle with, even though we're saved by grace. Progressive sanctification is a reality in the life of every believer. And so we need help from one another. We need to engage with one another, even especially in times when we are struggling with sin in our lives, where others can even come alongside of you when you're struggling with sin. But we must do so, of course, in love. We must practice love in the way that we approach one another in the most critical moments of life where there are heavy burdens to carry, including sins that we may be struggling with. And so last week, to help us with this and just to shepherd us through some of this, I began calling our attention last week to some principles of loving restoration in the church. And I encouraged you to view these from the framework of of the church as God's family. This is such a helpful framework for us, isn't it? The church as family. I mean, when you think about your own biological family, and when I think about my little family, my precious wife and kids, you know, my desire is to do everything that I do by the grace of God in a way that is helpful and not hurtful to them. In a way that is constructive and not destructive in the life of our family. In a way that is loving and not hateful. And I know that that is your desire too as you think about your physical, biological family. But transfer that to the church. It's to be the same way in the, in the spiritual family of God, in the body of Christ. Where now, you want to be helpful, not hurtful. Constructive, not destructive. You want to be loving and not hateful in everything that you do. And so, this framework is very, very helpful for us. And so I told you that as we think about the church's family and, and we engage sin in the church, we must first and foremost, if you're looking at your notes, think or understand the purpose of restoration in the church. This is the first point that we saw last week. And if you remember, we said that it had a fivefold purpose. It's for the glory of God that we engage sin in the church. It's for the honor of God's Word. It's also for the protection, purity, and holiness of the church. It's for evangelistic witness, right? That we engage sin in the church. And it's also for the good of the sinning Christian. And we highlighted the fact that it's restorative. We are to be restorative in our approach. Our aim is to restore someone to full spiritual health so that they will be effective once again in their pursuit of just being the kind of person that God has called them to be in the Christian life. That was the first point. Also, we, we considered the fact that we must know the people of restoration in the church. The people of restoration in the church. And that all of us as Christians, not just leaders, not just counselors in the church that are more of an official, in a, more of an official uh, uh, counseling situation, but all of us as believers are to be engaged in dealing with sin in the church and opening our lives up for others to come alongside of us to help us with our sin and address that. And obviously we need to do that cautiously. Okay, Galatians chapter 6 speaks of the fact that we are also susceptible, so we must each approach this with gentleness, each one looking to ourselves, lest we too be tempted. So we must do this cautiously and making sure that we are walking in submission to the Spirit's leading in our lives, walking in obedience to the Scriptures, right? We're not going to be perfect in that. We're going to have susceptibilities and weaknesses as well. But we must also walk cautiously as we engage others in their own sin and address that. 
All of this, brethren, as I was contemplating this this week, requires that you and I be actively engaged in discipleship in the church. That we be highly committed participants rather than passive spectators if we're going to apply ourselves to these principles. Remember our definition of of, uh, discipleship. It's cultivating deliberate relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. It's relational. It's for the purpose of growing in Christ together mutually. And it's in the context of a commitment to a local church. And so deliberate discipleship requires uh, spending time with one another and sacrifice and positioning yourself in hubs where you can practice and flesh out life-on-life relationships where you're opening up your life for others to invest into you and speak into your life and vice versa. Context where we can come alongside of one another to encourage and motivate and instruct and exhort and even correct one another, right? And if we're going to do it in a loving way, then we need to do it in a relational way. Not in some robotic, mechanical kind of way or in an abrasive sort of way, but in a highly relational environment where we get to know one another and we're pursuing relationships with one another. This is where this type of ministry flourishes. So know the people of restoration in the church. Now, on the one hand, church discipline or better church restoration is is an ongoing, organic natural ministry that's happening among us in the flow of life-on-life relationship where we're uh, spending time with one another and addressing sin as we see those, right, in a loving fashion with one another, just in a natural, organic fashion. On the other hand, when a professing Christian refuses to repent when lovingly confronted on their sin, this progressively becomes more formalized in the context of the church. And that's what we want to talk about and consider this morning. The whole church becomes more involved in a formal way, including the leadership. And so here's the question. What does dealing with conscious, willful, unrepentant sin by a professing believer look like in the context of the church? I'll ask that again. What does dealing with conscious, willful, unrepentant sin by a professing believer look like in the context of the church? That's our third point that I want us to look at this morning. This third principle that I want to call our attention to is this. We must be faithful to the process of restoration in the church. You and I, individually and collectively as believers, need to be faithful to the process of restoration in the church. And to see this, you're already in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, where our Lord specifically is instructing His people, specifically His church, if you notice, in verse 17, right? Tell it to the church. That's the word ecclesia. And, and really, the etymology of that word church in verse 17 has the idea of, of tell it to the, to the assembly of gathered redeemed ones. That's really the true etymology of the church. It's the assembly of the gathered redeemed ones. Jesus is speaking specifically to His church, giving instruction about how we ought to engage in addressing sin in the lives of one another. And often missed, I think, is the previous context of verses Uh, um, 15 through 20, verses 12 through 14. Notice these verses again. Verse 12. What do you think, Jesus asks, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Verse 13. if If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, over the one sheep, more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And we know who the little ones are that Jesus is talking about here. He's not just talking about physical little children. He used physical little children in the previous context to point to the reality of little children in the sense of those who believe in Him. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 18, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble... So Jesus is using little children to point to a greater spiritual reality concerning believers, those who follow after Him, those who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Those are the little children that He's talking about in these verses that we're going to look at. How do we address a believer who is in sin? But notice the love, that love is the motivation, right, of the shepherd who has 99 sheep, but one sheep has gone astray, and he's going to go after that one sheep. It's like you, if you have five kids, are you going to be okay if four of them are okay and one of them goes astray? How many of you would be okay with that? Not me. 
I want all of my kids there, protected under my roof. Love motivates that, right? Love energizes and fuels that, that you want all of them protected. So it is with the shepherd. And the whole point that Jesus is making is our Father pursues this way. Love is the motivation of His pursuit of His children, professing believers. Notice also who it is that gives the instructions here. It is the Lord Jesus, brethren. The same person who said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is the Jesus who, who dies for His church. This is the Jesus who has died for your sins. He is the one that is giving these instructions. And, I, and that's important to reiterate because of the fact that many folks come into this text and have a really hard time with what they call church discipline or church restoration and these instructions. But I would challenge you, consider the source. Who is giving the instructions here? The lover of your soul. The one who went to die for your sins. That you might be rescued not only from the penalty of your sins if you've trusted in Jesus, but also from sin's grip and power. It is this Jesus who speaks these words that are so strong here. Not anyone else. And Jesus, the Lord of the church, says what goes. See, we don't struggle on the human level so much with this, right? In the business world, we, don't, we get why the CEO or the president of a company says what goes. He's the boss in our home life, right? We don't struggle with this so much. Nobody's going to come and tell us on our property, in our home, under our roof, how to handle our money, how to handle our property, or anything like that. We call the shots. But it's interesting how people, even in the church, can struggle with the Lord of the church who died for the church giving these instructions. And we must step back and recognize that He is the perfect one. He is the self-sacrificial one. He can be trusted. Christ knows what is best. Amen? He knows what is best. And so please note the motivation of Jesus' words are love. That shapes the, the, this process of pursuing a professing, unrepentant Christian who, like a sheep, has gone astray. The motivation is love. The context is the local church and a commitment to the local church where we exercise church discipline or church restoration. And the process is laid out by the Lord Jesus. He's the source who died for His church. He owns her. He calls the shots. He's boss. He's boss. And so what's the process then laid out by our Lord Jesus, our loving Savior, for restoring a professing, sinning Christian? You're going to have some subpoints under point number three there. But write this down. This first step is personal, private confrontation. The first step is personal, private confrontation. Look at verse 15 with me. If your brother sins, mark that, he sins, she sins, Go and show him his fault in what, brethren? In private. In private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Go and address his sin in private. Notice that. At least four things should happen when there's a brother or sister in the Lord that you believe is in sin. Four things at least. One, you need to do this. Before you go and confront them, pray and check your own heart first. Pray and check your own heart. Ask yourself, am I thinking the best about this person? Can this sin be overlooked? Is it a pattern in their life? Right? Was this sin intentional? It doesn't mean that if it was unintentional, you still shouldn't address it, but that might inform and shape the way you approach this, right? Was this sin intentional? So first of all, pray and check your heart before you do this personal, private confrontation. Secondly, express your love to them when you do go to them. Hey, brother, sister, I'm coming to you. I want you to know that this is really hard for me to do. I'm just concerned about you. I care about you. Express your concern and your love for them. Thirdly, clarify. Clarify, 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 brother or sister. Do they even understand what they've done? That might require some questions, right? Be clear, right? Don't assume. You know what my experience has been oftentimes when I've gone to somebody who I believe is in sin? More often than not, I can tell you this, this was their response, generally speaking. Brother, I am so sorry. I didn't even know that I had done that. I wasn't even aware that I had done that. 
More often than not, that's been my experience. And it becomes a sweet time just to being reminded of the fact that, hey, I want you to know, thank you for clarifying that. We're all good. And I've had to do that for people as well. Clarify. Do they know what they've done? Don't assume the worst. Think the best. 1 Corinthians 13 believes all things, right? True love believes all things. You believe the best about people until proven otherwise. Fourth, show them how they violated God's Word. And please mark that. Show them how they violated God's Word. Look at verse 15. If your brother, what? Sins. Not if your brother, you know, um, has has uh, violated one of your preferences. Not if your brother has, has irked you because, you know, you have a pet peeve on that particular issue that they violated from your perspective. Right? Or, you know, on an issue of liberty, we confront somebody. Or our soapboxes, right? On something that is really, really important to us. No, he says, if your brother sins, hamartia is the word there, Right? It's the idea of missing God's moral standard. When we come to somebody in, in personal, private confrontation, make sure, brother or sister, that it's actually because of a biblical violation that you're coming to them. Not because of your preferences. Not because of your pet peeves or your soapboxes or some issue that really is the biggest issue in life for you because you happen to say it. you got to confront them on their sin, Right? On the fact that they've missed God's mark, God's moral standard. That's the idea for, of sin, hamartia, in verse 15. This is so important for us to kind of dwell here for a little bit. You know why? Because you may be really, really, have really, really strong opinions about a variety of things in your life. About a lot of things. You may have strong opinions about styles of dress. How should people dress? Right? Should they wear a tie? Should they not? We have opinions about that. We may have opinions about types of entertainment that are allowable or not allowable from our perspective. Should I have a television? Should I not have a television? Should I have a smartphone? Should I not have a smartphone? I'm anti-social media. I use social media in my life. See, we have opinions about social uh, types of entertainment as well. We have people who have opinions in the church over the years, as I've pastored, about dieting and exercise, right? Only organic food is allowed. No fast food. McDonald's never feed your kids that, right? I've had parents who have confronted other parents in other places because they bought their kids McDonald's Happy Meals. How could you give them that? Do you know what's even in that thing, you know? I'm telling you, you probably have experienced some of this. Maybe you feel that way a little bit, right? We all have opinions about various things. Methods of education, right? Homeschool or the highway. Public school or the highway. Charter, a hybrid of the two, right? We have opinions about that. What is allowed, what is not in terms of our kids' education, right? In recent years, a couple of years ago even, or three years ago, during the whole COVID season when all of that was hitting, I mean, I had people and we had people, that, pastors that I was hearing about who actually were considering starting churches that were, that were anti-vaccination churches, right? And then there were the pro-vaxxers, right? And we started seeing these divisions within the church. Should we? Should we not? And people wanted to start churches based upon this. And you know what's so sad about that? Divisions began to formulate all the more. And people's identity markers were in those preferences, in those types of things, above Jesus. Before you knew it, people's bents were always talking about that. Is that allowed? Should we do that? Should we do not do that? And Jesus was nowhere to be found in any of that or the implications of being on mission for Christ. That's a sad place to be, right? These things divide us rather than unite us as they should. And so I'm sharing this with you because I'm amazed at how over the years Christian, Christians are so quick to, be, to sinfully judge one another on matters of personal preference, of personal opinions. And that's what they confront one another on. Matters where Scripture allows liberty and, and latitude and the application of biblical principles in a variety of areas of life. Where there's no chapter and verse clearly delineated, but there are principles to apply. And it might be applied very differently to one individual or one family unit as opposed to another. And God gives us freedom and latitude within that, within biblical parameters, where we are not sinning or violating God's word. But we tend to judge each other based upon those personal preferences or personal opinions. And you may have some really good personal preferences. I might even agree with some of your personal opinions. 
But we should always make sure, brothers and sisters, that we don't ever make our personal preferences convictions to impose on other people and conscience bind other people. You know what I'm saying? Got to be very careful with that. Very careful. Now, to be sure, there are, there are explicit, clear commands in Scripture that are non-negotiable, right? For example, sexual immorality in the church or in your life, porneia in all its forms, that is not negotiable. Fornication, sex outside of marriage. What comprises a real biblical marriage between a one man and one woman in a committed covenant-keeping marriage? That doesn't change based upon the culture. God, from before the foundation of the world, planned that out, right? There's, that's not negotiable. It's not, it doesn't have to do with a social construct. No. God designed that, and He set that in motion for His glory and for our good. Those things are not debatable. Lying, murder, right? We don't debate whether we should be able to abort babies because murder is sinful, right? And a baby is a human being already at conception in the womb. We don't debate that. Clearly delineated commands, yes? We don't debate those things. For sure there are those matters. Lying, murder, stealing, those kinds of things, right? We don't debate those but there are also practical matters where there isn't specific chapter and verse. Thus saith the Lord, Arius. What do we do with those? On those wisdom issues, we might call them, there are principles, God-given guidelines, right, that should shape and inform each person's approach or family unit or choices that we make in a particular area. And there are so many variables and factors in that in our decision-making, leading to us glorifying Christ in those decisions. I mean, again, just think, for instance, on method of education, right? Method of education. I met responsible, faithful, homeschooling parents, public school parents, private school parents, Christian school parents who were very responsible, very diligent in applying the biblical principles. I've also met very irresponsible homeschool parents, public school parents, charter school parents, hybrid, whatever, you name it. I've met very irresponsible, lazy parents who don't train their kids in the context of the home. But guess what they say? Well, we homeschool but you're not training them in the context of your home, right? What is the non-negotiable, clear principle, right? What's the biblical mandate in that case? The governing principle is this. Love your children by training them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, yes? Point them to Jesus. Point them to their only hope. Show them the holiness of God in their sin so that they see their unworthiness and the fact that they are desperately sick and wicked and the only hope is Christ right? That's non-negotiable right there. But what you do as far as their education, listen, you practice biblical uh, wisdom and love and even seek the counsel of other godly people who walk that path and get their counsel so that you make wise, informed decisions, right? What about on the question of the types of entertainment? Should I have TV, iPhone, right? What types of music should I listen to? All of that. What kinds of movies should I watch? What does God your Father want from you? Ask yourself that in those areas. What does he want? He wants you to be like Christ, doesn't he? He wants you to be holy. And in so many of those issues where there's no chapter and verse for those things, here's the question. How close can I get, not, not how close can I get to sinning, but how, how holy can I be? How Christ-like can I be? And that might necessitate that I get rid of this thing if this thing is causing me to, to stumble. That might mean that if I have a trouble watching certain movies, then you know what? I'll chuck the TV out the window, right? Or I'll put parameters around my life. That may very well mean that you're not around certain things that you know are things that you have a propensity toward. Because the issue is how holy can I be? How Christ-like can I be? What about styles of dress or how we should dress, right? Can I wear this or that? Well, there's no chapter and verse, thus saith the Lord in many of these situations, right? In terms of how we should dress in all instances. But what is Scripture clear about? That you be holy. That you be Christ-like. That you express even love in terms of the choosing of your dress. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 speak of the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. Christ purchased you. Your body belongs to Him. Therefore, He says, glorify God in your body or with your body. That has implications for the way that we dress, doesn't it? That we are not our own. So Christians from the heart should dress appropriately. 
in a way that honors the Lord and expresses love for one another, brethren. And by the way, both us men and women need to hear this. And we need to be mindful of this, right? In the way that we dress, especially right now men with the whole feminization of men in our culture. Even men need to be addressed in this area, right? Putting out selfies with images of yourself or whatever. We need to be very careful with that, brothers. If that is you, and maybe you know people who don't really, or men who don't really think about this and consider uh, the glory of God and how they're loving their sisters in the Lord as they're putting out these pictures. Called to be holy, right? The question is, really, in all of this, how can I contribute to Christ-likeness in my own life and in the life of my spiritual family? This is also applicable to you ladies, right? The general principle, ladies, is to exercise wisdom, caution, and love in the way that you dress. Think about that. No one expects you ladies, by the way, to dress with a, with a muumuu, okay? Nobody's telling you that. Nobody's expecting that. But remember to exercise wisdom and love and caution in the area of showing skin, showing shape, and showing off. You know what I'm saying? Don't need to really expand upon that. Just use caution. Use wisdom. The glory of God. The love of others. Love for others. And the choices that you make in that particular area. Be wise, be cautious, and be loving in the choice of your attire as well. That's something to consider. But the whole point here is make sure that you're confronting someone on sin, verse 15, on hamartia, a violation of God's moral standard, rather than on your preferences, right? Things that may fall under the realm of wisdom issues, liberty issues, where there's freedom and latitude in applying the biblical principles that God has given us to making wise choices in those areas that glorify God, that are the best for us and the best expression of love for other people, right? Don't just confront people on your preferences and make your preferences convictions to impose on others. Did you notice also in this first step that gossip is not allowed? If your brother or sister sins, go and show him his or her fault in what? In private. Go to them in private. Gossip is not allowed here, right? Some people are very indiscreet and even shameless in the way that they bring out issues and go talk to everybody but the person that they feel has violated Scripture. Got to be very, very careful with that. People that have a loose tongue, they tell everybody but the person, right? And others spiritualize this more subtly. You know, I'm just seeking counsel from others. I've sought 17 people for counsel this week. Have you spoken to the person? No. I need to seek 25 more people this week, right? You know, I say that jokingly, but I've seen that so many times, brethren, in churches. Where you talk to everybody else but the person. You never go to the person. You never even pray for the person. And I would say that if you're the recipient of information regarding another person, an accusation about another believer, then you need to make sure that you encourage them to follow through and say, hey, now that you've talked to me, you have a responsibility to go talk to them, okay? Remember, they're your church family. They're your brother and sister in Christ. You need to go talk to them. Do you love them? I know that you do. I know that you care. I know that you're concerned for them and the glory of Christ, right? You need to go address that with them and make sure that you clarify and you ask questions, check your own heart, all of those things. Make sure that you do that. Hold them accountable to follow up. Now, under this first step, most issues are normally resolved right here in the flow of life in the context of the church, just organically as we interact with each other, right? You go and clarify, you confront. The person says, you know what, brother, I'm sister, I'm so sorry about that. There's forgiveness granted. We don't repeat the matter anymore in a way that would bring, impugn the character of that person anymore once there's been forgiveness extended, right, and granted. We don't lord it over them. We move on, right? Notice the end of verse 15. You have won your brother, right? You have won your brother. You have won something back of great value is the idea your brother or your sister in Christ. End of story, right there. What if they don't repent? What if they don't repent? There's a second step. Write this down. Small group confrontation is step number two. There's small group confrontation. Matthew 18, verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. What are the one or two there, there to do with you? Pummel the person? That's intimidate them. Let's gang up on them so that we manipulate them to the point where they, they confess, right? Of course not. He tells us, 
So that, right? Look at the text, verse 16. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That appears in caps in the New American Standard because it's a quotation of Deuteronomy 19.15, right? So the second step is A, for confirming the facts. Notice, confirming the facts. Are these things really true? And they also, B, are for the protection, listen, of the sinning Christian. Think about that, right? Now you have extra eyes and ears to discern the issues. And you can ask yourself, has this Christian truly sinned? Do they really understand? If you're not one of the witnesses, do they really understand what's being said here? According to God's Word, is this really a biblical violation? Or more, hey, brother, this is more of your preference. A good preference, by the way. That's wonderful that that worked for you. But hey, that's, that's, not, that's not something that you can impose on somebody. They're not sinning because they're not doing things your way, right? You need to be very careful. So that's why you have these witnesses there. Extra eyes and ears to discern. If this person is still unrepentant, Right? It could have been that the first confrontation, they did repent. And they did ask for forgiveness. But this other person is after something more, right? They want, they want vindication uh, of a, uh, in an extra manner. So they're bringing other people along now because they want to really suck it to this person. I've been there, I'm telling you right now, and I've had to then confront the other person who brought witnesses in to do this in a very subtle way. So we want to confirm all of those things. Above all, they're there to plead. They're to plead, brother, sister, if these things are true, hey, listen, that's not good for you. Right? The Lord doesn't want that in your life. This is what it could lead to in your life. For the glory of Christ, repent of that. Turn from that, right? Those witnesses are there to plead if there is a real issue. Now, if they repent, forgiveness is extended, right? Don't repeat the matter. Praise the Lord. What if they don't repent? What if they don't repent? Well, there's a third step, right? Third step. We call it church confrontation. You might even put public church confrontation there. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that is the brethren, tell it to the church. This is now a public communication to the assembly, the assembly of the gathered redeemed ones, the church, where the church is now gathered corporately, right? Now please pay special attention to this. There is such a great time gap here. Right? That we don't see in the text, but, but as far as it's, that it's practical outworking, there's a great time gap here. Before we even get to this third formal step, it's important that the elders are involved in this now. Or even now as your shepherds who guard over your souls and watch over your souls, we've been looped into the situation, right? That's escalated. And only after a period of time and discussion, as best defined by the elders in terms of time frames and prayer, and investigating the facts, right? Once the unrepentant sin has been confirmed, then the elders can pull the trigger on public communication to the rest of the assembly. There's a big time gap. No one wants this to get to this point. I can tell you that right now. Having been there, this is the last thing elders that are biblically qualified, loving elders want, okay? No one wants it to get to this point. So there's a lot of prayer, patience exercised. Right? In my experience, there have been occasions in the past where a team of elders waited months, brethren, months before we ever went public with, with a church communication. Because we wanted to go the extra mile to make sure that we confirmed all of the facts, investigated the matter to the umph degree to make sure that we didn't pull the trigger in any capacity prematurely at all. And I tell you this because this third step is historically where people get all bent out of shape and they draw conclusions this is public humiliation. This is a public shaming. And to be sure, I've known of contexts where that's happened that way. Things haven't been handled very well, right? In love and in the truth and with compassion and in a restorative fashion. I've seen that. Having said that, right, many folks miss the fact that there have been long conversations and tears and, and this process behind the scenes and meetings and praying and pleading and patience, going the extra mile for other people to plead with somebody and elders pleading with people. And none of those things, most of those things people don't know about. All they hear is the public declaration, right? Or the public statement. Well, public humiliation, publicly shaming somebody. Listen, in a biblical church where we practice truth and love, 
That is not going to be the case. Amen? We want to follow God's word in a compassionate and discerning manner. And so it's only after much prayer, discerning the issues, etc., that we tell it to the church. And when we tell you and we get up and announce this to you, here are a number of things that we're going to say. You ready? A, we tell you who the person is by name. By name. Because they're your family members. They're your brother and sister in Christ. You need to know who they are. B, we talk to you about the specific sin involved within appropriate biblical parameters. We tell you what specifically the sin was or is that they're not repenting of. C, we tell you what's been done to pursue and to plead with the unrepentant professing believer to this point. We want want you to know what efforts have been made. And fourth, D, we tell you what you need to do. Summed up in three things. Pray, reach out, and fear. Pray, reach out, and fear. Pray for them. Go to your Father who is actually able to change hearts. And then reach out to them. Beg them to repent. Beg them to come and sit down with the elders and have a conversation. Beg them to come back and, to, and, to, and meet with them. Email them. Text them. Write to them. The point is not to harshly harass someone, but to plead with them because they're your church family. They're your brother and sister in Christ. You're concerned about the name of Jesus. You're concerned about their testimony before the world, and you're concerned about their own soul. Amen? You're concerned about them. So go to them and then fear. We talked about this last week, Galatians 6. right? Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's the caution to us always. And brethren, I can tell you, this is where I've... I can just share. There have been some amazing stories of Christians, for instance, who have committed adultery and they've repented and they've come back to their spouse and back to the church. I can think of two instances right now where there's a growing, thriving marriage in other contexts because somebody was called to repentance in the area of adultery, having an affair, and they repented and now they have a wonderful, healthy marriage. Amen? There's always hope in the gospel. Christians living together, right? Professing Christians living together, not married, and attending the church like nothing. Like fornication is normal, right? And we confronted them, got to this point with one of them, they repented, they ended up getting saved, getting married, and now they have a wonderful marriage. What the common struggles of marriage? I've known of husbands abandoning their families and repenting. I've known of wives abdicating their role in the context of the home and repenting of that. The gospel brings hope, doesn't it? That's why this is restorative. And so we just need to be committed to doing what is right. Jesus always knows the right thing to do, yes? Jesus' word is always the right thing to do, no matter how we feel about it. Jesus' word is always to be followed, and he will honor that. He will honor that. Now there's a fourth step. This is after much time and prayer and pleadings and appeals, etc., by the whole church. Again, time frame is, is a subjective. There's a lot of discernment that happens. But if the person still doesn't repent, right, look at the fourth step. It's corporate excommunication. Corporate excommunication is step number four. Look at the middle of verse 17. And if he or she refuses to listen even to the church, let him or her be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. What does that mean? A Gentile or a tax collector? Well, a Gentile was considered a heathen, a pagan idol worshiper in those days. And a tax collector was a Jew who worked for the Romans, collecting extra taxes from his own people. He was seen as a traitor, treated as an outcast by the Jews. What's the principle? They would have understood this, that to treat as a Gentile or as a tax collector meant to ostracize, to remove from our midst, to exclude, to reject an unrepentant professing Christian from the fellowship. They were to be cut off from experiencing the benefits of fellowship in the context of a local church for the glory of God, for the purity and holiness of the church, and for their own soul, so that maybe this gets their attention, right? They were to be cut off from the fellowship of the brethren. By the way, this is not the only text where we're told to do this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6 
It says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, right, professing brother, who leads an unruly life. In other words, he's rebellious, living, uh, present tense verb, continually in that state, unrepentant, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us, meaning God's word that you receive from us, that we taught you, Right? Paul there is saying, I'm not talking about people in the world, similar in 1 Corinthians 5, people in the world, otherwise you would have to leave the world. I'm talking about any so-called brother or sister who says, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but they're living in willful, known, unrepentance, and they will not repent even though you've called them to repentance. What does he say? Remove the wicked professing Christian. 1 Corinthians 5, who is sleeping with his stepmom committing incest, and doesn't want to repent. He's in sin. He's hurting the church, hurting himself, hurting his family, right? He's an affront to the glory of God. So remove him. Remove him. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? The purity and the holiness of the church. I know this is so countercultural, but we're not about adjusting to the culture, yes? You have the unchanging Word of God. What would our, what would our culture say? Oh, you know, it's rough today, you know? There's much temptation out there. Times have changed. These are social constructs. Don't be so hard on the poor guy. He's probably just addicted to sex. Leave him alone. Or, hey, listen, be nice. Don't be judgmental. Nobody's perfect, right? Who are we to judge them if they love one another, even if they've left their spouse and they're li living with another person who's not their wife or their husband? Hey, they love each other. People fall out of love all the time, you know? That's what our culture would say. What does God say? They are an affront to my glory. They are destroying themselves. They are hurting their family. Right? They're bringing down the name of my son as a good witness with the culture of the day. When you're called to live on mission, remove them. Remove, remove them. This is really hard stuff, right? But again, consider the source of the words. Who's speaking the words? Christ, the lover of our souls, brethren, the one who died for our sins, the one who is perfect, who is the God-man, sinless, perfect, blameless. He always knows what is perfect and what is right. Amen? So let that drive you. Consider the source who's speaking this. This is not to shame people, to humiliate them, to ruin their reputation, to gossip about them. No, it's for their good, the good of the church, and above all, for the glory of the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what is at stake. So we must be faithful, right? Heavy stuff, isn't it? Heavy stuff. But our Lord Jesus knows this. And so I love our fourth principle here. It's very important. Write this down. We must take comfort in the power of restoration in the church. In the power of restoration in the church. Listen to me. When we administer church restoration in a biblical and loving manner for the glory of God, the good of the church, and the good of the professing Christian living in sin and unrepentant sin, we can find great encouragement in that God is in on this. God is in on it. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is one of the most misinterpreted texts in all of the Bible. This is not talking about people gathering to pray and that Jesus is there in their midst. That is an application of that. Of course, if we gathered tonight for prayer, Jesus would be amongst us, would he not? He's always with us, of course. But that's not first and foremost what he's talking about here. These words must be understood in context. Jesus has been talking about what? Church discipline. Church restoration. And so he's saying this, ready? If you follow what I've said, if you follow my word, heaven is behind you. The heavenly highest courtroom is behind you. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. So that as difficult and as painful as this process is, we take comfort in that great reality. And the fact that when we follow God's word and deal with sin in the church, brethren, in the truth and in love, heaven, God in heaven approves. God in heaven validates that. And that is what matters most at the end of the day, doesn't it? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what Jesus says and what God approves in his word. Amen? 
That's what we want to do. He will bless that. Even if the, the blessing comes in different ways than we would have ever expected it. He will bless it. He will bless when we do what is right. That's the key. Doing things according to His Word and in love. What kind of a church should we be as we address sin? Should we be about the truth or should we be about love, brethren? What do you guys think? Truth or love? Both and? Yes? Not either or? Both. If you follow Jesus' words, we're doing that. We're keeping the truth in love in our practice of loving church discipline or church restoration. This is so key. Because sin is real in the church. None of us have been perfected. And so our expectation should be that we're going to struggle with sin. Sin is going to be amongst us, right? But we need to be faithful to loving one another as a spiritual family, practicing church restoration as Jesus outlines this here. And so don't forget, church discipline, loving restoration is not the invention of men, but that of Christ, the Lord of His church. It's not an act of sinful vindictiveness, but one of pastoral care from the heart of our Lord Jesus, the good and beneficent shepherd. Amen? It is not an act of hateful humiliation against anyone, but a process of loving restoration for their good and most importantly, for the glory of the name of Christ, our precious Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for restoring us through faith in Jesus Christ to yourself. Thank you for the fact that you have also have outlined practical principles and mandates for us to practice and flesh out loving restoration in the church in the greatest moments of need when we struggle with sin, Father. Thank you for your clear instructions. Lord, help us to be faithful as a church, as individuals, as families, as a church. Help us to consider your glory as the greatest motivation for lovingly dealing with sin in the church. Help us to always be acting out of a motive of love for the person who is in sin. And Father, help us to remember our witness even as we seek to preserve the purity and the holiness of your church. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.